But I'm going to talk to you today about a chapter, the kind of the middle chapter of my new book, which is um, subtitled Further Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert on Sexual Identity and Union with Christ. After I published my first book, <clears throat> all of a sudden I got lots of questions about sexual orientation, about gay Christianity, about um, how, we, how we read the Bible, questions that I really had not thought about. I mean, I have lots of people who say, well, if you're not still a lesbian, then you obviously weren't ever a lesbian. And you know, all of this is points to the fact that we are using totally different anthropologies of personhood to understand what sexual sin means. And so the heart of the, this new book takes apart where this category of sexual orientation came from and whether it is, um, it, whether it is useful for Christians to buy it. I think too many Christians have just bought this term, sexual orientation, hook, line, and sinker. And, and I, I think it is a, um, I think it's a de dehumanizing term whether you identify as heterosexual or homosexual or the plethora of alphabet soup that stands between. It is a dehumanizing term. So what is sexual orientation? In a recent blog post, Nick Rohn wrote about the experience of walking into a room, seeing Rick, and feeling that warm feeling deep inside. And this is in the blog, uh, the, this is in the, the internet community called Spiritual Friendship that was founded by Wesley Hill. And it's meant to be an opportunity for gay Christians to support one another and to create an internet community. So that's, that's where this was written. So Nick writes this, quote, as I noticed Rick with pleasure, the attraction produced all sorts of I want desires in me. One of those desires was a sexual desire. No, I wasn't immediately imagining what it would be like to be in bed with him, but the seed was present. However, I also experienced many heightened desires toward Rick that had nothing to do with sex. I desired to go talk to him, shake his hand, get to know him, laugh with him, and serve him a glass of punch. In other words, not only were the seeds of sexual desire present, but the seeds of desires of friendship, hospitality, emotional intimacy, sacrificial service, and love were all there as well. All different desires, all colored by the same initial attraction. It is this experience of persistent attractions towards other men leading to multiple heightened desires that constitutes my definition of same-sex attraction, experiencing a homosexual orientation, or simply being gay. The whole experience, not merely the sexual parts, quote, unquote. In this blog post, Nick captures the common use of the concept of sexual orientation, which is, quote, an enduring pattern of emotional, romantic, and or sexual attractions to men, women, or both sexes, as defined by the APA. In this post, Nick talks about being sexually attracted to Rick, but also about being emotionally and affectionally attracted as well. He talks about how these patterns of attraction to men are persistent, that they are best categorized by the idea of sexual orientation or being gay. Nick goes on in his essay to talk about how some of these attractions are sexually illicit and must be put to death and others are morally neutral and or beneficial and should be allowed to flourish for both personal good and greater social good. And to some degree, I agree. Nick then explains though 
that the whole experience, the sanctified and the sinful, are all part of his fixed and persistent sexual orientation. And what Nick says is completely accurate according to the APA's definition of sexual orientation. Now, let me say that Nick is a brother in the Lord, and I value him and I pray for him. And in his writing and in our email correspondence, he has helped me to see my own blind spots and errors. And even though we disagree on things, I know that he also prays for me. Importantly, I also know Nick's commitment to living in chastity. But Nick promotes a category of personhood that I believe does all of us more harm than good. Let me explain why. 19th century origins and the power of the history of ideas. The concept of sexual orientation was first used by Freud, and its effect, if not intent, was to radically resituate sexuality from its biblical creational context to something completely new, the foundational drive that determines and defines human identity. Nothing short of personhood was at stake. By defining humanity according to its sexual desires and segregating it according to its gendered object, Freud was, intentionally or not, suppressing the biblical idea and biblical category of being made male and female and in God's image, and replacing it with the psychoanalytic category of sexual identity. In both intense and language use, Freud took aim at the Bible's authority to diagnose gender and sexuality dysfunctions and prescribe solutions for them. I do not believe that this was an innocent move. Throughout his career, Freud maintained that belief in the Bible, that the belief in the God of the Bible was, quote, universal obsessional neurosis, unquote. The category of sexual orientation carries with it a cosmology of personhood that undervalues image bearers of a holy God. Now, Freud did not come out of nowhere. Ideas shape worldview, and worldview shapes culture. Freud was a product of German Romanticism. The Romantic period is typified by an uncontested embrace of personal experience, not merely as self-expression or self-representation, but as epistemology and personal identity, who I am ontologically. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe's suicide memoir, The Sorrows of Young Werther, narrated this idea for Western culture. Werther took Germany by storm in 1774, tragically spawning a number of suicides while maintaining and manifesting the idea that personal experience is itself a branch of epistemology. That is, Romanticism claimed that you know truth through the lens of your personal experience and no overriding or objective opposition can challenge the primal wisdom of someone's subjective frame of intelligibility. See, our problems didn't start with the sexual revolution in the 1960s. We're talking 18th century here. In Romanticism, this knowing and being known is identity rooted and identity expressive. Romanticism went beyond a solipsistic, me-centered understanding of selfhood. 
Solipsism, remember, is the belief that one's own mind and its properties are the only things that are sure to exist. Romanticism actually took this one step further to declare personal feelings and personal experiences the most reliable measure and means of discerning truth. Doesn't that sound a little bit like today? Both a theological and philosophical issue is at stake here. The theological issue is the development of a category of personhood that fundamentally rejects original sin. In rejecting original sin, the Romantics declared their belief in the inherent divinity and goodness of all humanity. The philosophical issue is epistemology and the role of personal experience. Prior to the 18th century, experience as truth, even in secular contexts, would have met with real life and theological challenges. Even today, experience as truth is the lowest form of epistemology. The 19th century category of sexual orientation reflects Romanticism's claims on epistemology, redefining men and women from people who are made in God's image with souls that will last forever to people whose sexual drives and gender identifications define them and liberate them and set them apart. Indeed, while the Christian maintains that image bearing is what sets apart humans from animals, the 19th century ushered in a new measure of man, one for whom sexuality and sexual pleasure became a defining marker. Thus, the category of sexual orientation is what we in theology call a neologism, and it creates fictional identities that rob people of their true one, male and female image bearers. Sexual orientation is a word that extends the definition of sexuality beyond its biblical confines. Biblically speaking, sexuality is always teleological. That is, sexual desire implies a desired object, and sexual practice implies a necessary outcome. Because the APA's definition of sexual orientation includes non-sexual affection, this remaps personhood in a way that God does not. And here we need to pause and think about what it means that five unelected Supreme Court justices appended the category of sexual orientation to the 14th Amendment. You see, because this is no longer, you know, I'm just, I'm a history of ideas person. It's me, my cat, my coffee mug, you know, Freud, Goethe. But now we're living it in an even more real way than what I'm describing on the pages here. Put another way, biblically speaking, there is nothing sinful and nothing gay about non-sexual, same-sex, deep and abiding friendship. Desiring to bring someone a glass of punch or sacrificially helping a friend who needs you is an expression of our image-bearing of a holy God, not our persistent pattern of sexual desire or temptation. See, that's something that the um, Spiritual Friendship blog wants you to think about, that somehow being gay or being lesbian makes you a better kind of friend. It makes you somehow closer and more in touch with what it means to be man or woman. And um, there are just some major, major theological issues at stake in that suggestion. We must stop and ask, why would the category of sexual orientation include non-sexual affiliation 
except for the purpose of defining in a new way what it means to be human. This is no small issue. If we privilege secular categories of personhood over and against gods, we are doubting the Bible's ability to understand humanity, and we are denying to ourselves our maker's instruction. Freud did not invent or discover or name something true about humanity that the writers of the Bible missed. That's Matthew Vines's case. That's Matthew Vines's point. You know, Freud, Freud's development of sexual orientation is like the telescope. It just gave us this new information. Well, it was new, but I'm not so sure it's information. Categories we use to represent image bearers of a holy God matter. You see, words like, kish, like kitchen wash rags carry and distribute a whole lot of history and bacteria with each use. Some of us know that more intimately than others here. And the category invention of sexual orientation brings a whole lot of bacteria with it. Everyone loses when we define ourselves using categories that God does not. People who identify as heterosexual and homosexual have much to lose by defining themselves according to the category of sexual orientation. In 2014, Michael Hannon wrote an absorbing essay in the journal First Things entitled Against Heterosexuality. The idea of sexual orientation is artificial and inhibits Christian witness. He begins his essay with Michel Foucault, the French historian of ideas who died of AIDS in 1980. Hannon writes, quote, Michel Foucault details the pedigree of sexual orientation in his History of Sexuality. That's a three-volume book, and it's really the first time in history that the idea that sexuality and gender are um, social constructs was um, disseminated widely in the university. Whereas sodomy had long identified a class of actions, suddenly for the first time in the second half of the 19th century, the term homosexual appeared alongside of it. This European neologism was used in a way that would have struck previous generations as a plain category mistake, designating not actions, but people. And so also with its counterpoint and foil, heterosexual with secular society rendering classical religious beliefs publicly illegitimate. Pseudoscience stepped in and replaced religion as the moral foundation for venereal norms. Sexuality moved from a verb, practice, to a noun, people. And with this grammatical move, a new concept of humanity was born. The idea that we are oriented or framed by our sexual desires that our differing sexual desires and different objects of desire made up separate species of people. That is actually in the original French in, um, in Foucault's History of Sexuality, that the invention of homosexual created a new species of humanity. How appalling. And that self-representation and identity now rooted in sexual orientation and not in the purposes of God for his image bearers. In Foucault's words, quote, homosexuality appeared as one of the forms of sexuality when it was transposed from the practice of sodomy into a kind of interior androgyny, a hermaphroditism of the soul. The sodomite had been a temporary aberration, the homosexual 
was a new species, quote unquote. Prior to the 19th century category invention of sexual orientation, no one's sexual practice or sexual desire prescribed personhood or defined their personal identity. Notice Foucault's use of the word form, soul, and species. <clears throat> the use of the word form implies that sexual desire shapes our organizing frame, the basic building blocks of selfhood. That makes sense if you believe in evolution. If you believe we were just a kind of random accident, why not? <clears throat> the use of the word soul implies that sexuality, not God's image, was the real harbinger of humanity. And in here we see the way that um, especially sexual sins have become indwelling sins and have become forms of identity making. The use of the word species means that a new concept of humanity was born, at least within the history of ideas. And this means that instead of saying, I have a son or daughter or neighbor who identifies as gay, we have to say, you are a gay person. We are commanded by the grammatical um, imposition of this category to ascribe personhood where God does not. Sexuality, according to this new definition, exceeds sexual desires. Even in Foucault's articulation, non-sexual affections are cataloged under a person's sexual orientation, thus relocating sexual desire from teleology, its endpoint, to psychology, personhood, personality, likes, dislikes, etc. This explains in part why in terms of gender identification, it's totally kosher for somebody to reinvent his or her gender identification each and every day, right? You've got 50 gender identifications to choose from on Facebook, and if a student walks into your classroom and says, today I'm female, tomorrow I'm male, you just have to bow down to that. And that idea found its emphasis and impetus right here. Sexual orientation is thus said to encompass every fiber of a person's selfhood, from margin to center. If I self-define as heterosexual or homosexual, I express this deep and originating mark of selfhood in everything I do, from how I walk my dog in the morning, stir a pot of soup at lunch, and take the garbage out at night. And do not think I'm kidding. I've had someone tell me that personal, that uh, sexual identity is so important that it's reflected in everything, including how he takes the garbage out. And I asked if that meant that taking out a, the garbage for a neighbor meant he was committing adultery. Because you know what? <laughs> we are in crazy world right now. We have just, just jumped off the boat without a life jacket. With this comprehensive shift in personhood, a new kind of sexual freedom emerged, where everything, including non-sexual affection, is subsumed by this new humanity of sexuality. And everything is a character trait that supposedly flows from this humanity of sexuality. Indeed, sexual orientation went from a categorical invention to heralded immortal truth in 100 years. Let's think about that. Freud wasn't exactly ancient. He's pretty modern. In 100 years, taking out the concept of being created in God's image and bearing an eternal soul in its wake. It is now a term embraced uncritically by believers and unbelievers alike. 
sexual orientation defines selfhood as the sum total of our fallen human desires. Through it, we get no glimpse of how the covenant of grace defends our real identity in Christ or why, say, biblical marriage is a God-designed creation ordinance and a living reflection of Christ and the church and not merely a man-made convenience. I believe that sexual orientation is a lose-lose paradigm for everyone, but especially if you struggle with unwanted homosexual desires. Hannon, in contrast, thinks that self-described heterosexuals have the most to lose. He writes, quote, the most pernicious aspect of the orientation identity system is that it tends to exempt heterosexuality from moral evaluation. If homosexuality binds, B-I-N-D-S, binds us to sin, heterosexuality blinds, B-L-I-N-D-S, blinds us to sin, quote, unquote. This heterosexual blindness seems to have two forms, excuse-making for sexual sins of a heterosexual bent, pornography, incest, fornication, and adultery, and an excessive and scintillating focus on specifically what gay men do in bed. That's produced two interesting prongs in evangelical culture. It's produced this conversation of the gag reflex, which you may be familiar with, maybe not. It's also produced, um, uh, fueled the idea that reparative therapy is the solution, right? If we can just, uh, you know, really, really forgetting that, that homosexuality is a sin to be mortified, not a behavior to be modified. Indeed, because of the unwitting deceitfulness of the sexual orientation paradigm, we are much more likely to be numb, Hannon says, to heterosexual sin and excessively focused on homosexual sin than we would have been prior to the 19th century. Heterosexual blindness makes a Christian ignorant to the very sins that may destroy him. Homosexual approval makes a person unable to enter into a gay neighbor's life in a way that God may use to spare him from God's wrath. Both take Christian witness out of the game. And this might raise another question. Does Paul's observation in Romans 1.26 that homosexual sex is unnatural warrant the conclusion that heterosexual sexual sin is a somehow less heinous form of sin? And I know this is a big debate, and so I'm not going to go deep into it except to say that, you know, certainly in natural law studies, there is a, a kind of pitting of this idea against the, the other. Now, on the one hand, we know that any sin that attacks a creation ordinance is a biggie, and therefore homosexual sin is a biggie. We also know that the blood of Christ covers all of that. And so I think this is just one of those debates where you see natural law not really helping us get to the other side. Um, it is only a believer who can repent of sin. An unbeliever cannot repent of sin. Uh, John Owen says an unbeliever's primary job is conversion. So the question might be posed like this. Should we be engaging in a kind of comparative notion of sin? Is it helpful to just say, hey, you're a really big, horrible, terrible, rotten sinner, very scary, too frightening for my dinner table, but these folks here, you know, they, they just kind of jive a little better with, with my, my particular sin preference. 
People send me lots of interesting questions, people. I'm not necessarily making that one up. Many Christians follow this line of reasoning and draw the conclusion that same-sex sin is somehow further from the reach of God's redemption than other expressions of sexual sin. So we have to farm these sins out. You know, the church is not competent to deal with homosexuals. No, no, no. We need some special interest groups here who can put on the, you know, the real, the real gloves. But pride, lust, bitterness, anger, and a multitude of other sins lie behind our sexual sins in a way that prohibits sweeping generalizations as to the evil of one over and against all others. After all, there are heterosexual perversions and abuses that are unspeakably abhorrent. A heterosexual married man who rapes and abuses his wife is committing horrific evil that in no way is mitigated by the fact that it is heterosexual. God forbid one might say otherwise. We do have a biblical model based on excusing yourself, though, from repentance on the grounds of comparative sin. It doesn't go well. It's in Luke 18, and it's the parable of the the Pharisee and of the publican. I won't read it because I think we know it, but in general, that's probably not a move that conservative Christians should be be going in. Um, The practice of sexual sin is a fruit That's the other thing I'd like to talk about, that I believe that Romans 1 shows us that homosexuality is a consequence of original sin, one of many. It's the ethical outworking of original sin. And so we see there that it is a fruit of other more devastating sins, pride and lust. But we still must confront what the Bible says about the unnaturalness of homosexual sex in Romans 1. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. You know, Romans 1 will always hold for me a powerful place in my life as a believer. I first read these words when I was in a committed lesbian relationship, and my first response was to ridicule them. I had not always identified as a lesbian, but once I met my first lesbian lover, I was hooked. I was sure that I had found my real self, and I was mighty sure that I knew myself better than this ancient book whose words called into question my ability to discern right from wrong. But after working through the rest of the Bible multiple times, I had to confront that the God who created us has the right to define those ordinances of his creation, including human sexuality. And while I came to believe that by God's design, sexuality is for the fulfillment of God's creation ordinance, I did not at first experience that truth. I only embraced God's truth because my conscience condemned me. At a certain point, I realized that the Bible was God's word and that it had the right to condemn me and not the other way around. Through God's power, I embraced the Bible as I do any number of things about God and faith that in my sin or limitation I don't experience firsthand. And because I embraced it as a new believer who still felt very much like I lived experientially on the wrong side of the natural revelation tracks, I had to study the idea 
of biblical sexuality from two perspectives. One was biblical ethics, what the Bible declares, and two was personal growth in Christ. Personal growth in Christ flowed from the pastoral care given to me by Pastor Ken Smith and the other members of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church, and it flowed quite naturally through the means of grace that lead us, in spite of our feelings or past behavior, to live as new creatures in Christ, standing in the risen Christ alone. It occurred to me early in this journey that to declare the biblical ethics of natural law scriptural is not necessarily implying that its point of view is always pastoral. Romans 1, 18 to 20 puts forth the biblical idea that what, of what theologians call natural law, the disclosure of God and his law as they are seen in nature. Romans 1 says this, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Let me tell you straight up that when I confronted these words this first seven times, they simply drove me mad. I simply hate to think in terms of wrath, punishment, and the expectation that we all learn the same lessons from the same perceptions or experiences. You see, every fiber in my postmodern being retaliated against this way of thinking. But here we see that God holds us responsible for suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. He declares that evidence, that, the, that ungodliness was evident within me. He portrays man as without excuse because his power and character have been clearly seen and understood through what has been made. When I read this as an unbeliever, I found this patronizingly insulting. I loved my lesbian partners and the community that we created, and yet these verses made it evident that God wanted me to behave differently than I did. Only later as a believer could I see why this argument did not convince me. God does not claim that the gospel is found within this particular portrayal of his power and divinity in nature. In other words, natural revelation exposed my sin, but God understood that there is a difference between the diagnosis and the cure. Natural revelation portrays God's diagnosis, but only in the gospel do I find the cure. That seemed fair. It seemed to be saying that my responsibility as an image bearer required that I know more of God than that which is found in the law. Specifically, it goaded me to know the gospel to study it, to ponder it, to allow it to creep through the wall that I had built around my heart. Natural revelation revealed my sin and caused me to doubt the Unitarian message that sin did not matter. Natural law is effective biblical ethics, and I believe effective public policy, but it is an incomplete pastoral instrument because natural law is simply not the gospel. When we preach the gospel, we preach the promise of a new life, new mind, new hope, new purpose, new union with Christ, new company of the Holy Spirit, new pardon of sin, new affinity for repentance and closeness with God, new love of the law, new ability to obey, new understanding of why God demands chastity outside of marriage and fidelity inside of marriage, new patience 
with people who do not yet know Jesus, new perspectives on suffering and affliction, addiction and change, new hatred of our own sin and patience with the sin of others, new responsibilities, new heartaches, new friendships, a new family within the body of Christ, new allegiances, new dangers, and new grace. I needed the expulsive love of my risen Savior to whisper in my ear that my burgeoning conviction of sin was truer than that which my flesh craved. Through the power of the gospel, it became clear that God's provision of salvation required that I understand, from his point of view, a biblical sexual ethic. Because God in Jesus Christ was my Savior and friend, I realized that I needed to take the time to really get to know him on this point. I needed to steep myself in the means of grace and wean myself from the world. And God used natural revelation to reveal my sin in this way. My knee-jerk response to creation ordinances revealed to me that I was resistant to know God, and that was sin. And so I committed myself to study these ordinances. It became clear that marriage between a man and a woman was by God's design, and that that design was intrinsic to the gospel message, not exterior to it. It also seemed clear that God did not design everyone for marriage. Natural revelation told me what God required, but without gospel grace, I could no more live out these Christian ethics than I could walk on water.